This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 10th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Divided government is good for spending restraint, and it's looking increasingly like divided government at the federal level is what we're going to get. Liz Mayer is a political strategist in Washington, D.C. For libertarians, she argues divided government is the best you could have reasonably hoped for. Yeah, I believe that's right. There are a couple of reasons. I think the main one is that as Cato itself has observed um, in, I think, quite a few policy papers, but certainly one that was produced taking a look at Trump's first term, um, generally having unified control of the federal government, um, or at least legislative branches in the White House by one party, tends to not be very good in terms of controlling spending. Um, It tends to be when you run up big deficits, when you increase the debt, when you are just spending lots and lots of cash. Um, And we saw that in Trump's first term. Um, You know, we saw that during George W. Bush's presidency. And one of the things that's interesting is when you look at, say, the Obama presidency, when you particularly when you got into a period when he was having a deal with a Republican Congress, Um, Or if you go back and you look at the Clinton years when he was having to deal with Newt Gingrich in particular, that was actually when spending really came down. Um, And of course, we know under Obama that various fights um, about government shutdowns uh, and other budgetary fights resulted in the sequester, um, which is really Joe Biden's handiwork. Um, He ultimately was tasked with finding a solution to this sort of gridlock And the one that he came up with was the sequester. And that was really his job, bringing that over the line. So I think when you look at the overall result where we're going to have a Biden presidency coupled with still a less Republican Senate, but still a Republican Senate and a slightly less uh, strong Democratic House majority, it bodes pretty well in terms of spending. Um, Now, there are other aspects of that, too. I would say that you know, libertarians were not happy about the mechanism by which Barack Obama established DACA um, to protect certain dreamers, but they also were not happy about the way that President Trump went about dismantling it and have been very aggrieved about the fact that Congress can't actually seem to get it together or won't get it together to pass any form of immigration reform, um, particularly to protect these people. Um, And then, you know, I think one of the biggest grievances of all that libertarians have with the Trump presidency is, you know, it's not like Democrats traditionally are particularly great when it comes to being um, adamantly pro-free trade. But, you know, Donald Trump made these people look like the most hardcore free traders on the face of the planet with all of the various trade wars that he sparked and bad deals that he cut that, you know, from his perspective, maybe were marginally better because they contain things like wage protections, but we're really very anti-free market and very anti-trade. So all of that would get better under a Biden presidency strapped with a Republican Senate and a slightly less Democratic House. Yeah, yeah, during the uh, Trump years, Democrats, at least according to polling, seem to be more free trade than ever. Correct. Right. And so, I mean, a lot of that is I think that uh, people align their views on things like trade um, and foreign engagement to whoever is leading the party at that particular moment. Um, I mean, we've seen that with a lot of polling about where Republicans sit on these issues. It used to be that Republicans were very staunch free traders. It used to be that Republicans were big supporters of NATO. Suddenly you start looking at uh, Donald Trump leading the party and all of those numbers flip, right? So that obviously has had an impact on how Democrats see this too. 
But I think it's pretty clear that Democrats are going to want to give their president trade promotion authority if he's asking for it. I think it's pretty clear the Republicans were very uneasy about going ahead and extending that to Donald Trump if he won a second term. Um, I think they will be much more comfortable doing that with Joe Biden. I don't think um, there will be some people who in the party who are going to want to still take a more pro-fair trade, so-called fair trade position. Um, and hold back on the trade promotion authority. But I think overall, um, the Republican Party still, in terms of its elected officials, remains largely pro-free trade. And so they will be interested in doing that as opposed to getting into a position of micromanaging all these deals. What do you make of the claim uh, was made by Walter Block in uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, just today, I believe, uh, saying that the margin of difference between Biden and Trump in a few key states that Biden won uh, was exceeded by the libertarian candidate and thus uh, the libertarian candidate Joe Jorgensen effectively handed the presidency to Joe Biden. Yeah, I, we go through this every time we have a viable or not even a viable, but a sort of notable third party candidate, right? Um, we had this debate with Ross Perot. We had this debate with Gary Johnson. Now we're going to have it again because of extraordinarily high turnout. Um, every piece of data that I have seen has indicated that it is totally erroneous to work on the presumption that people who vote third party would naturally be inclined to vote for just one candidate or overwhelmingly just one candidate if that third party person were not on the ballot. Um, and I think certainly my experience working in politics has borne that out. Um, it is true, I think, that Ross Perot being on the ballot did force George H.W. Bush into some positions and force his team to make some decisions that they do feel ultimately contributed to them losing that election against Bill Clinton. But when you look at the actual numbers, they just don't stack up. When you actually look at electoral college votes and where the candidates would have been if Perot hadn't been on the ballot, it's shockingly more even in terms of who takes what than what the, the George H.W. Bush team has ever wanted to admit. And then, you know, you go ahead and you fast forward and you look at the Gary Johnson effort in 2016. I was a Gary Johnson voter in 2016. I just don't think that that's correct based on my own personal experience. Um, I wouldn't have voted if Gary Johnson hadn't been on the ballot. I would have been writing in. I would not have voted for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. I said consistently the whole way through that election that it was my very strong view that there was a probability that within 10 years, either or both of those candidates would end up wearing an orange jumpsuit. And I'm not voting for somebody like that. So, you know, I've had a lot of people say, oh, well, that meant that, you know, you gave votes to Clinton. No. I've had people say, well, that meant that you gave the election to Trump. No. Also, I was voting in Virginia. And realistically, Virginia, Clinton was going to win by five points. So, you know, the Gary Johnson movement was significant in terms of sending a message, I think, to both political parties that they need to pay attention to libertarians. But I do not believe that it was enough to actually switch states. Um, you know, and so, yeah, again, having worked on that effort, looking at uh, a real survey of sort of how those voters, um, fellow Johnson Weld voters, felt about this, um, you know, yeah, there are some who, like me, would have written in or would have refused to vote. Um, and there are others who would have gone to one candidate or the other. But every piece of data that I've seen indicates that it was pretty evenly split. If you held a gun to people's head and said, pick one, 
you would have had pretty much 50% picking Clinton and 50% picking Trump. So I, I don't believe with this this year, maybe there are a few more people who could have gone to Joe Biden, I think possibly rather than voting third party. There are a couple of people I know who, if JoJo hadn't been on the ballot, probably would have gone ahead and voted for Biden. I don't know really anybody that would have gone to Trump otherwise. The response that I've seen from a, a lot of Republicans has, uh, you know, they're obviously upset to the extent that they uh, supported uh, Donald Trump for president. They're upset that the uh, libertarian candidate exceeded the the vote margin between uh, Biden and Trump. But uh, and to the extent that people believe that that was a relevant factor, uh, given the number of votes that went that way. Is does that provide, in your view, a sufficient context, uh, sufficient uh, incentive for either of the two parties to say, "Hey, we we should do something to uh, get these voters into our fold," or or do you believe that maybe these people just aren't gettable at all? I think some of them aren't gettable, um, but I, you know, as far as incentives, it's difficult. Ultimately, when you're working on a presidential campaign, you've got to put a coalition together and. The sad reality is that in this country, libertarians are not the biggest block of voters, and so we're not going to get catered to the way that other constituencies do. But with that being said, you know, I remember, you know, I saw my former boss, Scott Walker's tweet about this. Um, you know, I can't remember if it was the morning after, but I, you know, after Wisconsin was called, and I sort of thought, a lot of people were ragging on him and saying, oh, well, you know, he was making the erroneous assumption that everybody would have gone to Trump otherwise and sort of blaming libertarians for the loss. I'm not 100 percent sure what he was what he was saying with that. But the way that I interpreted that was what you're saying, that the parties need to find a way to cater a little bit better, because when you look at those margins, if you assumed that most people in Wisconsin who voted third party would have otherwise voted Trump. And I don't know, maybe they would have. Maybe he has that data. He is the former governor. I do not have the same data he does. Um, but I think that there are people out there who seem to have alluded to that possibility. And I think that you can read his tweet as being one of those things that does. Outside of uh, federal races, and in particular, the race for president, um, a lot of states did some very positive things. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, you know, full disclosure, my firm did work on uh, marijuana ballot initiatives, um, particularly more focused on South Dakota and Montana to a lesser extent, Arizona. Um, I do think it's extremely noteworthy when you look at the South Dakota results in particular. You know, you have a governor who has tried to stay pretty much within conservative mainstream, but then a little bit Trumpy too, um, with somebody who was out on the campaign trail, probably is going to run in 2024. I don't see how she doesn't. Um, and who opposed that initiative. And in her very, very, very dark red state that was very handily won by Trump, guess what? They decided that they wanted legal weed. So I think that there, there definitely are some indicators out of the election that there are areas where the parties maybe aren't catering to people as well. Um, and I would say, you know, frankly, that does go a little bit for the Democrats too. I think when you're looking at marijuana policy, Democrats have been a little better on it than Republicans have. But actually, if you go and you look at the party platforms between 2016 and 2020, there's a little bit of backsliding. Um, you, you actually saw Joe Biden take a, a more sort of, you know, restrictionist, more anti-marijuana legalization position than Hillary Clinton did. So, you know, I do think that those things can be instructive. Um, it is possible 
that if Republicans are really worried that they lost or that Donald Trump lost because of libertarians, um, you know, I mean, I think Donald Trump not having the personality traits and the sort of authoritarian impulses that he has would have done a lot more to assuage worries on the part of libertarian voters. But I also think that if he had gone out and said, hey, I did criminal justice reform and my next step on this is this is what I think needs to be done with regard to marijuana policy and something that was going to be more pro-marijuana and not in line with, say, what Bill Barr wanted or what Jeff Sessions had wanted, I do think that there, there probably would have been some votes there that he could have bagged. Um, and you could say that, you know, I, I think on civil liberties, that's also true. One of the great inconsistencies that really kind of shocks me coming out of the Trump administration is if you believe what Donald Trump believes, he's like the one guy in America who has been targeted more with domestic surveillance than anybody else. And I'm not saying that I do believe that, but that's what he believes and that's what his supporters believe. And I just find it extraordinary, given that, that with his levels of popularity within the Republican Party and his fundraising prowess and his ability to draw a crowd and his ability to leverage that, that under his presidency, we didn't see better reform when it comes to domestic surveillance. Because you would think he'd have a reason to care personally if he really believes all this stuff, but it didn't happen. And I think that's another area where, you know, when we look at what the result of this election is going to be, I don't know if we're going to see any real movement on that. Um, you know, I think these these other bigger issues um, that uh, perhaps more people, more mainstream people care about, yeah, libertarians are going to be satisfied with that. But I don't know if you look at things like domestic surveillance. I mean, I don't know that Joe Biden's an improvement over Donald Trump on that. Um, I don't know that necessarily having divided government helps greatly with that. Perhaps it does. Um, I, do, I do think with some Republican losses in the Senate, every time you have losses of the sort of more moderate guys, um, you do end up with like the Rand Pauls, the Mike Lees, you know, the Ben Sasses of the world having a little more power. That might help. One uh, top big talking point for Trump on the campaign trail, uh, both in 2016 and in, in 2020, was war. And I saw Donald Trump Jr. at the Republican convention making a, a very concerted point about uh, the sort of stupid, pointless wars that the United States is engaged in, uh, is to the extent that Republicans remain, in a sense, Trumpy. Uh, and Joe Biden is in the White House, who I remember very clearly was advocating against a surge in Afghanistan uh, in 2009. Is there an opportunity for divided government to finally produce an end to a U.S.-led war? Well, I mean, it sounds like Biden wants to try. Um, I don't know how productive that will be. Uh, clearly, drawing Afghanistan to an end has been a conundrum that has now faced several presidents, right? I mean, it is our country's longest running war, so it's obviously a complex situation for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there are some things when you go and you look at Joe Biden's foreign policy record that should give people who are a little bit less interventionist hope um, and not not less interventionist from the perspective of, oh, we just don't want to do anything. And then, oh, crap, something really bad is going to happen. A red line is going to be crossed and then we're going to go engage in something massively stupid and not well thought out, which is more of what I think you saw during the Obama years. I mean, I remember back when we when Biden was running for president in 2008 and he was talking about Iraq. Now, he obviously did vote for the Iraq war, um, 
But as much as Donald Trump has said that he never supported the Iraq war, we all know that's not true. He did too. Um, the reality is that a lot of American uh, politicians and frankly, a lot of the American electorate and the American public at large just got that one wrong. We just got it wrong. That's how it is. Um, but I think if you go back and you look at when he was running in 2008, you know, at the time, he was getting dinged a lot for saying that eventually Iraq was probably going to devolve into three states. You were probably going to have a split between the Kurds and the Shia and the Sunni, and that that was an okay solution with him and that he would work towards that. But I actually think in some regards that might have shown a lot of a lot of sort of foresight um, and being kind of prescient about the moment and where things were headed. And so I think possibly if you have somebody who sort of looks at things that way, that may be better for helping us avoid getting into certain conflicts because you may have better predictions about how people are ultimately going to behave. Um, he does seem to want to get out of Afghanistan. I think that's true. Um, and, you know, I disagreed uh, with when I read that Joe Biden had not been supportive of um, going ahead and doing the Osama bin Laden raid. He thought it was too risky. Uh, personally, for my money, this is one area where I'm a little more, more hawkish. If anybody came to me and said, we think we've got a 75% chance that we've located Osama bin Laden, I'm like, send in, like, send in the Blackhawks, do what you need to do, done, good. But, you know, Joe Biden, that was not his view. His view was that we needed to hold back. It was too risky. And so I think when you look at his thinking there, that may be indicative of how he may look at other, um, you know, sort of examples and instances of foreign interventionism that could come up. Liz Mayer is founder of Mayer Strategies, a political consulting firm. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>